We, ch- we chased him so hard that I actually mocked up the logo for Storm uh, uh, Creek. What Crow was Creek. it? Crow Creek yeah. number two. We yeah. put the big Roman numeral on it. We sent it to him. And I think we had him. We had him. He was saying the term sheet looks good and all that. And then NGP took him to Argentina to shoot pigeon. And he, wa- he, wa- he wasn't <sighs> he coming go- with he, Kane at yeah, that point. He wasn't, he wasn't going with Kane. Yeah. I, I, he, uh, you know the the last that 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 was what that last iteration completely turned me off to private equity. That was my first private equity like venture was with Tecalote. Yeah, and like we bought this huge. We we had two hundred fifty thousand acres, and we were doing great. We were doing great wells, and we were returning twenty five million dollars like quarterly to NGP. Like doing what you're supposed to do, like running an oil and gas company. Right, and it didn't matter at the end of the day. Like they were, they were gonna roll us up with two other companies in Tulsa, and it didn't matter. I was just like, "This isn't like we're doing the right thing, and we're still losing." Yeah, and it's you know, I never want to be since they kicked my ass out of the club. I never want yeah. to defend private equity, yeah. but you know, there there is just a as we all know, unfortunately, G and A is not linear in oil and gas. Right. You know, it's more kind of stair step. So I mean, if you think something trades at kind of five times cash flow, I mean, wh- whacking out five million in G and A across the portfolio is twenty five million bucks, you yeah. know. And so, and uh, the other thing I've, I I uh, I feel bad about for management teams is shit can happen, sure, and you just get tagged as being bad or stupid or whatever when. No, that was a known risk, and it just happened. Just that, you know? the, the risk that we thought was there happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, my okay. So we'll we'll well, we could go on with the love fest with Storm forever. <laughs> but um, my favorite Storm story that he told me is one night he comes home with his wife. They've eaten dinner. She's got the doggy bag, this big piece of fish that, for whatever reason, you know, had a whole almost a whole fish, and they're just arguing. Arguing in the car all the way home. They get to the front of the house. They unlock in the front door, and they're just going at it. And she throws the doggy bag and the fish at him. So the fish winds up in the front lawn. Storm opens the door. The dog runs out, smells the fish, goes over there, gobbles the fish down. Fish said until the day that uh, Storm said until the day that dog died, Every time it went in the front yard, it stood right where that fish was, <laughs> just waiting for the magical area that Might show up again. You never know. Exactly. That's funny. Well, Greg Little, you're cool to come on. So this is kind of wild. So John, who works here with us at Digital Archives, y'all go to college together? Uh, John and I were in the master's program at Tulsa. So University of Tulsa has a uh, – they used to. They don't anymore. It's a master's of energy business program which basically is an mba but energy focused and he and i were in the in the uh program together so we we, we finished together so john and i've known each other for a while and and uh just down here at nape trying to figure it out 
Good. So, yeah, when you do, come back and tell uh, us. Yeah, it, shit. Yeah, if anybody has any suggestions, I'm. I'm My first nape was 1995, and I think it started in '93, maybe in '94. Strong. I, yeah. I think my I was thinking about that yesterday. I, my first one was 05. So we're going on the 20 year. Oh, shit. That's a lot of bourbon and Cokes over <laughs> at the Four Seasons Bar. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Four Seasons Bar. Or as we call it, the two and a half seasons. Yeah. Because that yeah. was always the crappiest Four Seasons in the whole chain. It was packed. I was actually there last night. It was packed. Uh, they actually have a really good bourbon selection, which no. is shocking. Well, they, they put some money into it recently. Yeah. So it's not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was packed, but yeah, we're we're down here just trying to figure it out at two dollar gas, and you know, just I don't know. We'll see. So you know, back when I want to say it was nineteen ninety five, it was it was back at the Weston Hotel uh-huh. in the in the Galleria. So it wasn't at the George R. Brown, right? And they literally had booths. So it, I mean, it looked like a science fair, you know, yeah. <laughs> in in junior high. And my hero was this guy. I walk up, you know, I'm a young associate. I don't know anything about oil and gas. I walk up and this guy pitches me on this uh, 3D seismic, it's a brand new thing. Sure. Got this bright spot. And so he draws a map. He's like, man, there's the high. We're going to hit it. Going to be a boomer. Next year I come back. He had gotten the well drilled. It was a dry hole, but he basically moved the high, <laughs> the high. Uh, an offset location over and he said oh yeah we we picked up a little of this in the log you know we're down dip we're going over there that dude got it drilled again and then it was a dry hole and then he moved it up an offset and that guy got that same prospect drilled three times i mean he he wasn't wrong he was just i don't know persistent i guess (laughs) yeah there's a there's a lot of that going on yeah i i i think it's a weird it's a very weird time in the industry from like a small operator standpoint, which is what I am. Yeah. And so it's really weird from a acquisition standpoint. It's it's very hard to get people to sell you anything right yeah. now because they don't want to sell at the low, you know, they're not going to sell well, unless they do. And, unless and, they have and to. low is, is price and multiples. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's not just sure. low prices. And, yeah. Then the other factor that we've definitely run into is debt. Like bank debt right now is so difficult to to get anything done. But great anecdote to that is we were trying to close a deal at the end of the year last year. A very small deal. It was it was a basically a bolt on to what we already have. Uh one point five million dollars. So like right. literally not a lot of money. Right. And the whole point of I was going to a bank that I didn't normally deal with because I wanted to establish, this is a small deal. I want to establish different banking relationships and want to, want to go try to do, you know, just this little bitty deal. Surely, you know, that won't be a big deal. We were buying it at PV 40. Okay. So the bank says, Oh, well, we'll, we'll loan you 50%, 60% of PV nine. They tell you that yeah. none of that is true yeah. because if I bring you a deal at PV40 and you tell me that you're going to fund 50% of PV9, you're going to fund the whole thing. Right. They had no interest in that. Yeah. They wanted half the money up front. They wanted a one-year AM, and they wanted, oh, yeah. Wow. And they wanted accelerated payments. And this was a small deal that was making, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, old production making at current prices, probably making 50 to $70,000 a month, like nothing, you know, it's a small deal, but operationally (laughs) it was a good deal for us. But I was like, guys, this is a bad deal for you. And it's a bad deal for us. It doesn't make any money at the terms you're, you're telling us. Right. And you say you're an energy lender, but if you're not willing to lend on PV40, you are not an energy lender. Like right. you're just a bank, which is fine. Right. It's fine, but that's not what you are. Yeah. And so we ended up losing the deal, and uh, you know it's still out there. I guess if we could go, if we wanted to go get it, but that just kind of shows you conventional lending. We did so our our first deal. Um, this was in the middle of COVID. Uh, I had just finished. Uh, I, I was working private for a private equity back group and um got rolled up you know as as they were consolidating uh it was ngp and so me and my partner were like you know we can do this we can go raise money and go do it ourselves well go try to raise money in the middle of covid when oil went negative and that's really in in pitch a oil and gas deal it's really hard it took us about a year to raise we raised 1.3 million dollars okay and the deal we ended up buying was uh, was a marketed deal, uh, and you know I, I I have a friend that is now our you know banker is is the bank we use exclusively pretty much, um, you know he said well what about you know conventional lending just didn't make sense financially like right. economically it didn't make sense, um, what about a USDA loan? I was like well tell me about a USDA yeah. loan. So the USDA has a program where um, they lend for rural development. And rural development can mean a lot of things. But the asset we were buying was out in the Oklahoma Panhandle. And if you've ever been to the Oklahoma Panhandle, it's all wind and snakes. That's it. There's yeah. nothing else out there. I think that's the definition of rural. Yeah. yeah. It, it so is I'll the get, most I, rural yeah. you, you get. And so I, I knew we qualified on that. And so the great thing about the USDA is they will lend – 80% loan to value. Okay. They will, it, it is the term of the loan is the half life of the asset. Okay. So the asset we were buying is like 25 years. So we got like a 10 plus term, like length on the loan, and it's a fixed interest rate. And so at the time, interest rates were low. And so we got a good, good term on that. They don't redetermine every six months. It's just flat. Right. So literally, Bought a eight and a half million dollar asset with one point three million dollars in equity, and used a USDA loan. Now the downside to USDA loan is you're dealing with the government, yeah, right. And so it takes longer. It, like you know, typical bank, you can get a deal closed in a month, month and a half, you know, depending right. on what, what it is. This took six months because you have to go through. You have to go through the local USDA, and if it's larger, the USDA loans are capped at twenty five million dollars. And so, if you go if you go over a certain amount, you have to go through the the uh, uh, the USDA office in, in Washington. So we were lucky enough; we were low, we were low enough financially, you know, the the purchase price where we only had to go through the state. Well, the problem with the state is those that are state employees. If you ever dealt with state employees, like go get a driver's license. Yeah, best of luck. And so the crazy thing is we could never get a response from them, right? Like tried and tried and tried. We find we, we know that the office is in Stillwater, okay? Right. In, in an unmarked <laughs> building, like, you know, that's locked. You can't get in. And 
me and my partner, more me, this is where my internet savvy comes in. I track the guy down that's in the head of the uh, Oklahoma USDA. I found him on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> and I tracked him down and I found out where, where, where the office was and what his name was and what his phone number was. Cause you can't call the USDA. You can't pick up a phone and call them. Just okay. they, they, there's no, you know, there's no communication. You, they'll talk to the bank. They really won't talk to you. So we tracked him down and we went to Stillwater. It was me, my partner, and the uh, the president of the bank walked in, met with him for an hour because they had never done an oil and gas loan. Like they, they're typically dealing with farmers, right? I mean, it's, you know, yeah. development. Uh, and so we sat there for an hour and walked them through the financials and showed them what it was, ended up approving it. It was the first, first oil and gas loan through the USDA in the state of Oklahoma. Now, I mean, any of the crazy green stuff, or you were just dealing with an Oklahoma dude? Uh, just, yeah, dealing with an Oklahoma dude. Okay. Like, it was a guy from Stillwater who liked to work and then kick off at 2.30, go fishing. Yeah. Like, it was literally, it was a good old boy. But they're good old boys that don't want to be messed with, right? Right. And, and okay. so, you walk a fine line between pissing them, off, pissing them off and, like, being diligent. Like, it's a tough line to walk but I, I think we walked it pretty good and so you know it turned out great we bought this asset and you know we, we were very fortunate in the run-up you know we bought it at 220 gas and then for the next year and a half gas was you know five six seven dollars yeah i was about to say so we ended up you know with that 1.3 million dollar investment the day we closed i handed the the equity partner his check back because we had made enough between um the signing of the PSA and the close yeah. to give him his entire check back. Like cause it went from two twenty to $4 in the three month span. Yeah. And then since then we made, I returned $10.5 million in uh, dividends back to him in a year and a half. That's pretty good. Yeah. That doesn't suck. Like, a nice, nice 10 X. And then the asset, by the way, I hope Colin McClellan's listening to this because a certain shareholder would like to see that from digital wildcatters. But uh, yeah, yeah. get on that, Colin. Yeah. Uh, and then the, you know, operationally, I, I'm, I'm under no illusion that like pricing didn't exponentially help that. But I'd always really yeah, be But we also, we bought right, right? Yeah. And, but then also we went in and, and, you know, improved production by 25%. It was just low hanging fruit. We don't drill, we just went in there and, did workovers and did some recompletes and, and plumbing. Yeah. Did what we do. And you know, the, the value of the asset. Now we had a economics run, uh, done by a third party out in Oklahoma city three months ago and it was $30 million. Yeah. And we bought it for eight and a half. And yeah. so like one of the things that I'm running into now, and you know, I'd love to hear like your, advice anybody's I'm, I'm, I'm open to anybody's advice right it's now. it's worth what you'll pay so for it so I, go ahead so i have that story right right that's a good story how do i go raise money off of that well for, for my next fund do i go do i just tell you that story and be like give me money i've done this let me do it again or do i go buy an asset right and <laughs> present it to you if you know if you're ready to invest a million dollars then i'm saying look we bought this asset the second asset that we're going to buy you know that we have a psa on we're closing on it and we're going to do the same thing we just did and here's the base for whatever the next fund is that's so, an easier raise i think let me do this because this actually dovetails with the question i wanted to ask you because i think 
a lot of folks that listen to my podcast want to be you. They want to go out, find an asset, do this, mm-hmm. you figure out a way to finance it and all. And so I'll go first with my answer to your question, but be thinking about, about if you had to summarize what you did with an eye towards repeatability, like how can somebody else go do this? Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you that question because I think these two things dovetail together because yeah. If if I'm a fund of some sort, you know, an NGP or the like, that's a great story. It also sounds like, how do I know you can do it again? Right. You know? Right. And so you want to, you know, you want to kind of put the, the, the story is less, here's what I did. The story is I learned and this is why I can do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of replicating that. I found that. You know, I can buy out of bankruptcies and the thing I can do that's unique is the paperwork or whatever it is. Or I have found, you know, we can go force pool people out of stuff or whatever the case is. You've got kind of your unique aspect. I generally speaking, smaller nichier type stuff has more credibility when it comes to repeatability. Sure. You know, I'm going to go in. I mean, I used to love. Uh, private equity guys that say, I need $500 million. Can I go, you know, outbid Chesapeake in an auction? Great. That, <laughs> Good best of luck. Yeah, that sounds the best of luck. So it's it's kind of like, what is that, that, uh, that repeatability? And then the, the other thing I would say too is it may just be one of those things that if I'm sitting in your shoes, I'm out looking for that next thing. Mm-hmm. And I always, and this is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but I always said that that really the way to view a barrel of oil, a field, or whatever is you convert it into dollars and out of dollars. And so if your field's at the point where you could go sell it at a PV 10, 12, something like that, and you find another asset that you think you can return 30 or 40, sell this asset and go buy that one mm-hmm. and just keep compounding money. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, every time you start over on a financing, you know, you, you lose in effect the compounding Correct. of that, of that money to some degree. Cause it's, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, people just freaking hate oil and gas. They, they just do right now. We, we talk all the time on here about how, you know, we just seeded the narrative to the environmentalists. We don't tell our stories. And then we whine about how, oh, the environmentalists get this. I'm like, well, show me your content. Yeah. I don't have any. Okay, well, great. What happens in a vacuum? We, we kind of know the other side expands. Um, but uh, so, so it's really hard um, from, from that point of view. And then it, because back in the day, you used to be able to go through a process. I'm going to go see Kane. I'm going to see NGP. I'm quantum. I'm going to get my term sheets and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And now... It's it's trying to find that that like buddy that helped finance your business. It's yeah. you know it takes a lot of searching. Yeah, it, it's a different animal, I think now. I mean, it, just from a PE side, I know for a fact. You know, it used to be you, you make the team, you get a term sheet from you know NGP Kane, whoever the hell it right. is, and then you burn GNA for a year trying to find an asset. Right. 
PE isn't paying for GNA right now. Yeah. Like you are not getting it. And yeah. that was, that was honestly on a much smaller scale. That was our idea is like, Hey man, we are not going to staff up. So many people make this mistake. There's a, I, there is a specific company right now I'm thinking of in Tulsa, Oklahoma that has drilled three wells, right? Maybe, maybe four. They have 40 people in the office. What are you doing? Yeah. Like I, our company has 500 wells and another 300 non-op. I have 15 people in the field and four people in my office, including me. Yeah. Like, on a good day. Run, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Run lean. Like you have to be run as lean as you possibly can. Cause at the end of the day, it's just going to help you break even. Yeah. But also like it's, it's not the, if, if you're one of those groups that's out there just burning GNA, burning investors money, like, cause you have the nice office, our first office, right? So Tulsa, if you know anything about Tulsa, uh, it's kind of split between like Midtown and South Tulsa and the further South you get the like, it's all chain restaurants. It's like, think of the, the worst dystopian, you know, the landscape that you can think zone. of. Yeah, yeah. That is, okay. that is South Tulsa. I live in South Tulsa. <laughs> And so my partner lived even further south in Bixby, which is a, a suburb, if you don't know anything about Tulsa. And I was like, hey, man, this is after we bought the asset. I was like, I don't want to be downtown. It doesn't make any sense. Like, we can do this not downtown. Yeah. I was like, there's no reason to pay X. This was, you know, when commercial real estate wasn't begging for people to to show up. Like, the, you know, the prices were still high. I was like, look, that's it's ridiculous. We ended up getting a little executive office that a guy built in Glenpool, Oklahoma. Glenpool is, a, you wouldn't know that you were in Glenpool, like if you came out of Tulsa, like it's just all one one place. Glenpool back in the day, the reason it's called Glenpool is because the Glenpool of oil was, that was kind of the big oil boom in Tulsa, that, that right. little, little city. And so we ended up getting a, a $3,000 a month, six office with a, uh, with a conference room, like that was our office for the first two and a half years. It was great. Like nobody messed with us. We literally, the guy we were, he built a bunch of these little executive offices and, and he's in Glenpool, so he can't rent them. So literally it was us, a insurance company, a roofing company. And then he, he rented the rest of the other six buildings to a marijuana grow operation. Nothing. So we would show up every day at the office and just, you know, it was, you'd smell the, the processing going on. Right. And honestly, if you went to our dumpster, you could start your own grow operation because they just, they dump the plants out there, which I'm uh, sure no. is not regulation, but that's how they were rolling in Glenpool. But like, you don't need all that stuff. And the minute you think you do, you're, I mean, you're doing it wrong, I think. Yeah. You know, you don't need all that stuff. So, so I'm going to ask you this question to, okay, you know, are there three to five lessons, two to four, whatever you want to say that you would tell the young guy who wants to go replicate what you do? Um, number one was clearly keep GNA low mm -hmm. uh, and all. And then the thing I'm going to follow that up with when we start talking about that is because uh, I want to roll into something else you do. I actually think we are missing a huge thing in energy when it comes to fundraising in any sort of shape and way. We don't use content to do it. We put together right. a book 
Right. We go into NGP's office or Quantum's office and we put it down and we right. walk through it and we like write on that book, secret, you know, punishable of death if you share this with anyone. Mm. Any other industry, you go pull up Mark Andreessen's, Andreessen Horowitz, the largest VC fund on the planet. You pull up their website, it looks like a media company. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's our podcast about the latest issues in gaming. Here's our white paper on the unbundling of LinkedIn, et cetera. Pull up Carlisle, pull up KKR, all these guys. I mean, even, you know, if you think about it, Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letter was the the how you used to do content. You'd right. write it. And he would get so much in the way of press for that and 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 everything. So I actually think all of energy fundraising should be doing this podcast posting on twitter linkedin telling our stories like i'd advise you next time you go out to the field you got an iphone you know shoot what you're doing document it people go wow that's cool and and i do think if a lot of us were doing that it kind of turns your world from from outbound you chasing money to potentially Mm -hmm. put stuff popping in because with the uh with the leverage of the internet, everybody on the planet can see what you're talking about. Yeah. So I would say, so to, to answer your first question, like how do you do what I, I did? Part of it is just blind confidence. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. Like I, 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 I'm a confident person, but I'm also, I, I don't think I know everything. Like I, I'm, I'm very, I, I know that people are smarter than me. I know technically and just in general, very smart, smarter than me. I mean, I have, I got a couple degrees, but that's just because I'm stupid. Like really <laughs> just a glutton for punishment, really. And I, I think honestly, you know, you're talking about John, like he and I, I, I went and got an, a, a energy MBA because I was pissed off because I had been passed up for a promotion and it was given to a guy that had the same credentials that, as me. And so I was pissed off. I was like, I will never let that happen again. I will be more qualified than anybody that I go up against. And so that's why I did that, which I don't know if that's $40,000 at University of Tulsa later. I, I'm not sure that it helped. But that's a real fuck you. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, really that, was. That was. It really, really, it really yeah. was. Yeah, my wife was really pleased. But part of it is just blind confidence. Like, you you have to believe that you can do this because you've seen other people. Let me tell you something. Here's the secret. All the guys, most of the guys that are super successful in the oil business, like it's not because they're super smart. It was because they were in the right place at the right time or they knew the right people or they worked their ass off. Like it's one of those three more than likely. And so that's part of it. The other part that I would say, especially in the current times with financing and just you know, gas is under $2 right now. Be creative. And I don't know what that necessarily means for you. For me, it was find creative financing. And so, you know, like, like I told the story about the USDA, that, that was the creative financing for me and I'll do it again. I hate the process and you know, the next big deal will buy because the terms are so good. Like I don't worry about my debt service. I just don't because it's so small considering, you know, just the general cash flow that we have, you know, month over month. And so be creative, whether that's 
bank financing or friends and family or institutionally, like whatever it is, you, you've got to be, um, you know, you, you've got to be creative in that way. And the third thing I would say is. Let me add one point there because I had this discussion a couple of nights ago. Young guy at the bar. Hey, Chuck, if I want to build my own company, what advice do you have? You know, I'm starting my own company. How do I structure the financing? And he started talking about it. And I go, hey, I'm going to sound like a real huge dick here. And I don't mean to, but how much money are you worth? Yeah. Just tell me. And I'm sure the guy wasn't worth this, but he said, man, I've got about $100,000 in the bank. Mm-hmm. And I just told him, sign whatever they put in front of you. Yes. It doesn't matter. Don't, don't get cute. Try to structure this, that. You just go talk to 10 people. And if one's willing to offer you money, you just sign it and go. Yes. Because there is no poor to rich person on the planet. That signed a great deal the first time. Yeah. And that's why they're rich. Yeah. Yeah. They got into the game. They, they, it turned out they were a player. Listen, the guy that financed us is a friend, right? Right. But he still made a shit ton of money off of me uh, in the past two and a half years. I made a little bit of money, but he made a whole lot of money, you know? And so, yeah, get the first deal under your belt. It doesn't matter. Because like, a track is, record is more important than than what the fucking terms of the deal were. Well, and I always tell people too. It's like I mean, it's like around here at uh, at Digital Wildcatters. I mean, if you know, I, I was the lead investor on the last round, and uh, and all. If I make a lot of money, Colin can come in here and ask for stuff, and that's usually an easy conversation. Yeah. It's not an easy conversation at time zero when I think I'm writing a check. Sure. Then I'm going to lose all of it. And all I've done is so that I have a nice podcast studio. Sure. You know, so yeah. Yeah. Just sign it. Get in the game. Yeah. Get in the game. Build build your you know, reputation. I mean, I, I now have, you know, I, I met with a, a buddy yesterday as the CEO of a, a company here in town. And he's like, you now have a story. Like you didn't have one, yeah. two or three. You had all the education in the world, yeah. and you had you had you know almost twenty years of work in the industry. But now you have a story, yeah. And that's more important than whatever the terms of the deal were. Totally. And so, um, the I had a third point about and oh, I cut and I cut yeah, you no, no, off. No. Sorry. The third point is, I am not an engineer. I am not a geologist. I have a law degree. I have an MBA. I'm I. I, I I'm third generational on gas. I know just enough to be dangerous. And so have people around you that know what the hell they're doing. I have a great partner uh, who, I mean, I'll tell anybody that wants to listen. He's the best operational engineer I've ever met in my life. And he's, I'm very fortunate to have him. And he knows what he's doing. I have two geologists that I worked with for several years you know, with private equity. They're awesome. Like ha- have people that, that are smarter than you around you. Like you cannot, you're never going to make a mistake when you've got smart people that know stuff you don't know. Yeah. There's a lot I don't know. And, and, and so I, I don't want to act like I know everything. And certainly from an operational standpoint, like you start talking about sleeves and casing and, you know, Hey buddy, do what you do, brother. Like, yeah. I, you know, better than I do. Like I can, I can fake it for about a 20 minute conversation, but like, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts, like you've got to have somebody operationally that can, can handle it. Be self-aware. Yes. I mean, yeah. Cause we've all got, we've all got blind spots. Yeah. You, you, and you, you have to be willing to admit that. Like I'm, I am willing to admit I'm a terrible accountant. 
I'm a terrible operational engineer and I'm a terrible geologist. I'm good at talking to people and raising money and like larger vision stuff. Right. And that's my role and I'm fine with it. Well, and, and also I bet, uh, you're good at too, is you've got a great partner that's an operational engineer. You've also got enough wherewithal to verify that, you know, he's not just talking a good game. You're watching production go up. You're watching Mm -hmm. costs get cut. Mm-hmm. He's saying, hey, this is going to happen, and it happens. When it doesn't happen, he told you beforehand, hey, here's our risk here. That sleeve gets jammed, and I'll cut it off at $100,000 or whatever. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, and then you know, you were talking about just the social media aspect. So I, I, you know, for the, for the people that are on, I guess, uh, Energy Financial Twitter that are listening to this, I'm Bunky Perkins on, on Twitter. Uh, and I have, I don't know, 60,000 followers, like, uh, you know, it's decent. Like I could, I, I, I've, I've, I've been hesitant to go on Twitter and like reveal a ton of stuff, not because I'm scared of being doxxed or like, I don't care anymore. Right. But you know, I have young kids, I have a wife, like, I don't want some joker standing, you know, showing up at the door. In fact, uh, at one point, I got threatened. My my favorite showing up at the door threatened Twitter interaction was with uh, the late great God rest his soul, uh, Ryan Mallett, who was the quarterback <laughs> at Arkansas. Uh, there was a point where uh, he was a quarterback at Arkansas, and me and a couple buddies started a Twitter account called uh, 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 it was a Ryan, it was a Ryan Mallett uh, Twitter account, and uh, we pretended to be him. And he's just a real scumbag. He's from Texarkana. Arkansas just diamond earrings like the whole the whole bit and he found out who was in charge of it I mean because it wasn't like a big secret and he threatened to come to my house and uh beat me up <laughs> six foot seven like I was like it, he, he's like I will come to your house and tell us to kick your ass like, right all right Ryan come on <laughs> so I all, all that to say I'm, I'm kind of I'm a little slow to reveal a lot of that stuff not because I uh, I'm you know, worried about people find out who I am, who I am, but more just like I have a wife and kids. I'm trying to protect them. Yeah. Um, but I think I could go on Twitter and be like, Hey, I'm trying to raise some money. I, I have enough people that follow me that, I, I mean, I could probably do it. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to do that. I think. So let me, let me, let me be your media advisor for just a second. Cause Please I, do. I fant- you know, I went on a podcast last week and they called me a micro celebrity. And I, co- I'm probably that too. I, of I, course, I had, to, I had to do that. Well, I assume you mean from the waist above. Yeah. You know, yeah, I had to do that gratuitous joke. But, you know, I would actually take a step back because you, you, why do you have 60,000 followers? Because you're funny as shit. It's right. great. I love reading that. I mean, man, you know, and I hate Bobby Petrino too. You know, I mean, it's your, your stuff's really funny. It's engaging and all. And I can tell by reading it, okay, this guy's smart. You know, you can't you can't make these jokes if you're if you're not smart. I would actually turn to your opinion about an SEC coach in some way, shape, or form. You've established that. So I would I don't know that I would go, hey, I'm raising money for this. I might start showing them some oil and gas stuff. Maybe it's a maybe it's Bunky Perkins does oil, or maybe it's just through Bunky Perkins. Yeah. But if you start showing some people, hey man, we're working this well over and stuff. I bet you start getting reach out of people saying, "Hey, man, next time you want to do something, man, let me know. I want to finance it." Yeah, you know, I, you know, because it's that thought leadership off 
authentic, genuine content that people go, I want to reach out to that guy. Mm -hmm. I, I think people ask me a lot, like, hey, do you make any money off that Twitter account? No, I, I don't. And maybe that's <laughs> to my own fault. Like, right. you know, and I, I mean, I started it because so before I was in oil and gas, uh, I was I was working in sports. So I, I, when I finished law school, my first job, I was the assistant athletic director at Louisiana Tech. And then after that, I was a GM in the Arena Football League, which was a whole experience. That's where Bunky Perkins actually came from. Uh, I was, just so you know, the the Houston team started off Texas Terror. Uh -huh. And then they went to the Houston Thundercats or whatever. I was actually voted Voice of Thunder. And they wrote me up in the program about how I was the loudest, most obnoxious I mean, fan. Th that's that's high praise from 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 the Arena League. I I was I was a GM of what became the New Orleans Voodoo, okay, which, in the in the AFL. Um, okay, but I, I, I did that. I, I I started the the Twitter account because I was bored. Like in the yeah. off season, like what the hell are you gonna do? Right. And so started it like that. And so I've never really like um, gaining monetary you know, benefit from it. But I will say I I have met a ton of really cool people. I've gotten to do a lot of really cool stuff because of it. Like I, last year, the, the PGA championship was in Tulsa, right? And Scott Van Pelt and Stanford Steve were, were there doing the broadcast and they hit me up on Twitter and I'm like, Hey, you want to go to dinner? Like, yeah, I'd love to go to dinner with you, Scott Van Pelt. Oh yeah. And so Scott and S Steve and I are, are friends. Like we text back and forth. I'm, text Steve a couple times during the football season and like stuff like that. I get, I get to go play a lot of really cool golf courses. Like I, I have, I have a lot of friends that are, are, you know, involved in golf media and, or, you know, even professionals and, you know, I'll get to go do trips like that. And so it does have some return on my really and, crappy and, investment. And I love this story because I think that happens in energy. If we would just do it in energy Correct. and we don't, we yeah. bury our heads in the yeah. sand. There's a couple guys. So I got into, uh, I guess, EFT, Energy Financial Twitter, during COVID, right? And so that's where I found you. That's where I found a lot of guys that are in the industry. And at the time, it was just a great coping mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> because it was like, we're all in this shit sandwich together, boys. Let's just, yeah. you know. Uh, but over time, it's really been beneficial just to you know, pick other people's brains, meet guys in the industry. You know, you never know what another guy might have as an opportunity for you until you, you know, until you talk to him, until, you know, until you reach out, until, you know, if, if somebody on Twitter says something that like really interests you, hit him up, like hit him or her up. Yeah, like, DMs you know, are like, open. Hey, dude. Like, yeah, like, hey, I was really interested in what you're talking about. Let's, you know, I, I think... Don't be afraid to do that is, is what I'm saying. Well, and it's interesting because what I think Digital Wildcatters is going to have me do over the next year, because we've got our knowledge app collide that we're we're uh, going to launch a new, a new version of in April. We Two years ago, we, we launched the really, really shitty version. And mm -hmm. then a year ago, we made it slightly less shitty, but still pretty crappy. And so April, we're going to launch it. And so they're going to actually have me out on the road giving the old white guy speeches. And that's one of the things I'm going to say to the old white guys is, you don't understand, these kids are digitally native. I was in New York. Uh, my girlfriend's a partner at one of the, the big accounting consulting firms, and she had meetings. And, you know, I'm unemployed, dude. 
And so she goes, okay, what are you going to do today? And I said, I'm going to go to a bar and have a drink with somebody I met on Twitter. And she goes, who's that? And I go, Frankie Fourfingers. Sure. And she's like, you go on somebody named Frankie Fourfingers? What's his real name or her real name? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out. I don't out. know. We had a great time. Yeah. I've, I've had several experiences like that. And like, you've just... Yeah, while well, well, it might be a little scary to meet Frankie Fourfingers at a random bar in, in, in New York and Red Hook. I don't know. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, you've got to take advantage of it because, it, you know, the crazy thing, I think in the industry, just in general, there's a huge age gap. Like, I'm considered young. I'm 45 years old. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of guys under me. and the I'm guys, considered young at 55. Yeah. Yeah. The guys that are under me. You're right. They're listening to podcasts. They're on Twitter. They're, you know, they've got discords. They're, you know, whatever it is. And the aging out industry, uh, the aging out of our industry doesn't appreciate that. And they're, they're going to have to eventually because we're going to be the only ones left. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and so I, I think it's wholly important to embrace that. Like, don't be scared of it. Uh, and you know, use it to your advantage. And I'm talking to myself too, right? Well, and, and I'm going to take you on the road with the speech because my speech is going to be kind of equal parts. They're digitally native. The other thing is they're amazingly collaborative. Sure. I mean, young people are collaborative where we've all had in the business, we've known something that nobody else has and we made a million bucks because we were able to use it. And we've pissed away $25 million because we wouldn't share information with somebody. Right. I mean, good God, how much money did we burn trying to figure out spacing? I got a software engineer buddy who sits there and goes, you know, software engineers, we have stack overflow. And like some guy from Google will say, hey, I'm, I'm stuck. I can't write this code. And a guy from Microsoft would be like, oh, I wrote a patch for that. Uh, you know, six months ago, why don't you try this? Yeah. I mean, that's Google and Microsoft. Yeah. Right. And uh, could you imagine Chevron and Exxon sitting down? Let's learn how to space together, you know? And he just, this engineer always go, you mean to tell me two sections of the land, you drop $250 million and you have not talked to your neighbor to see how their wells have done. Well, we got some data. No, 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 no. Public out. data. Yeah, yeah, Public yeah, yeah. data sucks. Yeah. You haven't sat down. Yeah. Uh, so collaborative. And then the other thing is we're rolling on this. The other thing I've found about the kids just hanging out here at Digital Wildcatters is kids get their sense of fulfillment from so much more than their job. You, I want to hear what you have to say about this because with my age, your sense of fulfillment was how much money do I make, what name is on my business card, and my kids' athletic achievements. Right. Period, right? I mean, if your kid's an amazing musician, you would still kind of turn your nose up and go, oh, you know, that, but but that's it. But kids today work maybe 20% of what they, they their fulfillment, they like, they like challenges, they like solving things, they're collaborative, they go out with their friends, they learn an instrument, you know. Mm -hmm. They're just so much broader, but. I, I think for me, my life is pretty simple at this point, like, and I like it that way. Like, you know, Tulsa is a great town to keep it simple, right? I live 15 minutes from anything in Tulsa and it's easy to get back and forth. So like between my kids and my wife and, and work, like I enjoy going in the office. I enjoy, but I also enjoy, you know, spending time with my kids, going and playing golf, like yeah. 
you know, it's a, it's a, and I don't really care about like, I don't care that I'm a CEO or a president or a managing partner or whatever the hell, like you can call me whatever you want. Like I, I my track record speaks for itself. Like it doesn't really matter about that. Like I'm going to make money because I'm good at what I do, not because, you know, of, of any other, you know, outside, you know, situation. I, I, but I also look at, so my wife is, how how much younger is she? She's six years younger than me. Sweet. Yeah. High five. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. She, I'm going to brag on her for a second. Nobody cares about this, but it's it's actually really cool for, you know, for me personally. Um, She, about seven years ago, started a pillow company in one of our spare bedrooms, right? It was before we had kids. She was just kind of, you know, screwing around and I was like, oh, I'll make some pillows and sell them on Etsy. We now have eight warehouses, 35 employees and sell all, all over the world. No way. It's crazy. She does. She has uh, uh, contracts to uh, do all of the VIP for F1 for Ferrari. She does all of Bugatti's stuff. She does Rolls Royce. She does Rolex. Like, it's hilarious. How do, pe- how do people find that? Uh, it's it's shoplittledesignco.com. Shoplittledesignco.com. Yeah, like she... Yeah, just built it from scratch. We didn't take a dime of debt. We don't have any debt in that business. It's a multi-million dollar business at this point. It's crazy. Like famous people buy from us. The Kardashians on a regular buy from us. It's crazy. Nice. But she built that thing out of nothing. It's great for me because especially two dollar gas. I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> sweetie, you got yeah, this. <laughs> the kids, the kids can still get, we can pay tuition this month. You know because she, uh, but she. Uh, she's passionate about that and she doesn't really care what her title is and doesn't really care about the money. Like she loves her people. We have a lot of first generation Americans that work for us. And you know, that's just in any industry like that where you're making something, you have people sewing for you. And like, it was super important to her to have health insurance for all those people. Like we pay a hundred percent of the health insurance. They don't pay anything. And it's not because we don't pay them enough. It's just because like, the the cost is de minimis for us in the long run. And it's more important to take care of those people. And so I take honestly, I take a lot of what she's done and try to apply it to what we, we do. And it's it's I, I don't know how good a job I do sometimes with it, but but it's it's great that both of us are in the house together and we can kind of talk through two completely different industries but have the same problems, especially like just managing people and and, you know, managing expectations and thinking about growth and all this stuff like it's it's been really cool to have you know your partner in life also running a million dollar company and can talk to her about stuff that normally you come home and like your spouse has been playing tennis all day and dealing with the kids and like you don't have the opportunity to like vent about stuff because she doesn't she or he doesn't understand right you know so it, it that that has been very cool and and I'm very fortunate in that in that respect. And yeah, no, and that the story you just told kind of fits the uh the vibe of what I was trying to talk about, the fulfillment. I mean, she's, you know, yeah, uh 38 or whatever, you know, younger. That's what you get out of uh people like, "Man, I'm going to get everybody health insurance," you know? Yeah. And it's not, well, you know, how much money do I make today? That that's kind of the vibe you get from kids and the old white guys in the, they don't get that. They don't get that. Yeah. Now I will also say the old white guys in the oil and gas business have some of the biggest hearts on the planet. Sure. I mean, they really do. 
I mean, there, I don't think a, you know, when oil is minus 37, I do not think a major charity in Houston went bankrupt because mm-hmm. oil and gas guys were like, well, this really sucks, but they, uh, they did it. They still so, struck the check. So, okay. I need one really cool Stevens story. Okay. Um, and Stevens, the Little Rock, Arkansas folks. The cabal. The cabal. I worked there for seven years, six years in the Houston office, one year in Dallas. I always said I wanted to do well, but not well enough to get promoted. Mm-hmm. And uh, since you're a sports guy, I'll go with one of my favorite stories. So Jack Stevens was chairman of Augusta for 20 some odd years. Right. And he would put the green jacket on the winner. And he was always so publicity shy um, that, you know, it kind of killed him to do that. But anyway, um, so... Back, I think it was 1972. You know, the the Masters always been on CBS, right? So CBS and whoever the chairman of Augusta have a really good relationship, right? And so CBS owns the Yankees at the time. They had bought it, you know, five years before because they were gonna. This was gonna be entertainment for the TV, and baseball is just a shit show. Yeah. And CBS, you know, kind of quickly realized this is not our our jam. So CBS picks up the phone and calls Jack and says, hey, Jack, we own the Yankees. We have no idea what we're doing. We spent $12 million on it. We're, we're a public company. Give us $12 million so we don't take a loss and all this, and we'll, and we'll give you the Yankees. Jack Stevens said, can I move them down here to Little Rock? <laughs> that is quintessential Stevens. And and CBS said, that might not be the best move, Jack. And he goes, well, I really appreciate the phone call, but I'm not interested. Well, and then, yeah. then they built the, the Stevens uh, baseball facility in Little Rock. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah we yeah. can do this. They're, yeah. that, that family, and it's such a, like, unless you're, I guess, deep into oil and gas, or, just, I mean, even investing with Stevens Inc., like, you don't really know about them. Those jokers, like, they're amazing. They're, that's an amazing family, and... I learned a ton. I worked for him for three and a half years. I learned a ton just on. Yes, I mean they're shrewd. They're super shrewd. Amazingly shrewd. Yeah, learning how to save money, learning how to protect your assets, learn how to you know take advantage. Like right now, they they are probably buying two dollar gas. They're out there buying, and you know that. That's the way it should be done. It's like, okay, in, in good times, you're saving your money. You're, you're being, you know, uh, responsible. And then when gas goes to two or oil goes to 40, then you start buying. Then the, there's blood in the streets. And that, that they've made their entire living multiple generations off of that. And so I, I took a lot from them. I'm, I'm very grateful. So I have, I have a good story. I have a good oil and gas story that has nothing to do with the Stevens family, but I think it's something you'll enjoy. Um, um, uh, energy transfer. Okay. Okay. Uh, Kelsey Warren. Yeah. Okay. V- very wealthy individual. Uh, Kelsey, I, we have mutual friends, Kelsey and I do. And one of those friends was getting married. I happened to be at his wedding. And so Kelsey, you, you talked about, you know, old white guys being magnanimous yeah. and, uh, Kelsey hosted the bachelor party. Oh my God. Uh, we, I, I drove down, uh, I was living, I think I was living in Fayetteville at the time. And, uh, my buddy, Chris, who was getting married, calls me, he goes, Hey, our bachelor party, I really don't know what's going on. Just drive to Dallas and meet me at the millionaire, uh, FBO. Okay. I, I, I can certainly do that. Get there. And 
it's Kelsey. Okay. He's got his Falcon uh, airplane uh, ready for us. We all, is 20 of us, get on the plane. Okay. Don't know where we're going. <laughs> like, I have no idea where we're going. Okay. We start heading south, right? like real south. Like, <laughs> we passed the Yucatan Peninsula. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> where are we going? Um, we land in Roatan, Honduras. Okay. Wow. All right. We get off the plane in Roatan. There is another plane. It's a Cessna. It's the biggest Cessna they make. It's like an eight seater, right? We get on that. We fly to Kelsey's private island off the coast of Honduras. It's called Barbaretta Island. You can look it up. Um, it used to be a, an old uh, uh, drug dealer's haven. Okay. But he bought the island and may or may not have hired some ex uh, uh, seals to go in there and clean out, quote unquote, the island. Uh, and so we land on the island. Okay. And he has a full, like, security staff, like dudes with automatic weapons, right. the whole deal. Like, think of think of the the greatest rich guy drug cartel thing you can think of. It pretty much was that. Um, and we spent the weekend on his island. That's that's cool enough, right? He's got like a fifty thousand square foot house that overlooks, you know, a, the the water, and it's just amazing. He had he had a zipline course all throughout the island and the last zip line went from uh, like in the jungle into his living room, like wild stuff. Right. Great guy. But the crazy part about it was on Sunday, we're sitting there, we're having breakfast and Kelsey gets a phone call and he goes, leaves, leaves the room, comes back, says, guys, I need to talk to you. He goes, listen, um, that was the CIA. Um, there is a coup going on currently in Honduras. Uh, we are going to land in Honduras. Um, don't fuck it up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it was, I, I mean, uh, maybe I'm talking out of school, but I think it was a U.S. government-backed coup. Um, and so uh, we land in Roatan, and the military's waiting on us. They walk us from the Cessna to, to Kelsey's plane, and we all get on the plane. Don't, you know, don't say a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and take off and land back in Dallas. Holy shit. So a bachelor party at Kelsey Warren's private island in Honduras with a uh, government coup. Nice. That is about as good of a uh, oil and gas story that I have of just. That's, I mean, that's top five of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, I, I still have pictures from it. It's great. He's, Kelsey's a, you know, you think, I mean, he's he's a killer. Like the guy's a killer. Yeah. But he's also uh, a super nice guy. Yeah. Well, what I've always said about Kelsey is I don't want to divide a pie with him. Yeah. But I'd do business with him on a handshake if the pie discussion was always already cut, yeah. you know? And like, he, yeah. so him, he came from nothing. He's just yeah. old country boy from East Texas. Yeah. Like he, he was not, nepotism was not in play for him. And so like, you know, I, I certainly don't think I'll ever be Kelsey Warren, but like, it's possible. Like, yeah, you, that guy came from nothing, and and literally, it's the, the wealthy of America. Woman. Yeah, yeah. The uh, back when I was at Stevens, we were in for the year I was there in Dallas. We were in the Crescent, mm -hmm. um, and Ray Davies mm -hmm. and Kelsey Warren had started energy transfer, and it was in a little house, kind of diagonally across the yeah, street. They still have that Crescent. house. That, house, there, that really? house is still. I don't. I don't know if anybody works out of there. Yeah. So, and you know, Ray, Ray retired and owns the Rangers. Rangers. Yeah. yeah. 
but yeah, that 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 is another interesting. Because I, I went to a meeting there. I actually took Rick Turner of Stevens with me into that meeting. Charlie Waters and Cliff Harris, sure. From Dallas Cowboys worked for Energy Transfer, and they were sitting there. Yes, so. they did. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting company, and 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 uh, Kelsey's one of one of the one of the guys I definitely look up to, but also I would want to cross. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, we're gonna get out of here. I used to, uh, on the podcast, I would do five questions. Remember when Craig Kilborn ran the Daily Show yes. before uh, Stuart came in and he would always do the five questions? I used to do that on the podcast. If it wasn't the middle of NAEP, I would have had five questions uh, written for you. So I don't have that. Okay. I got one question. Okay, though. one question. Bunky Perkins, cage match, three-year letterman. Who wins? I mean, Coach... He gets definitely. He, he's probably got the leverage on me. I'm I'm, I'm not small. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pretty big guy. Uh, but I I feel like his technique would probably win over. He's a great Twitter account. If you don't follow him, he's he's uh, uh, one of my favorites. And so yeah, three year Letterman. Uh, he I, I'm going to give him the win. I'll give him the win. All my money's on bunk on Bunky. Uh, I'm all in on Bunky. You got him. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I. I am falling apart daily, physically, <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I think Coach will probably probably take me. I'm willing to take that. But you did not finance your waterbed, so I have, well, not yet. <laughs> Two dollar gas, who knows? <laughs> Got the pillow business. That's right. God bless, dude. Pillows. Thanks for coming on. This is no, really thank cool. you so much. Uh, all the EFT people that listen, uh, I know sometimes I don't interact with you guys, but I'm always reading you guys. Uh, you make me laugh and keep me sane on a consistent basis. Awesome. Take care, everybody. Yeah, man.